Thanks for reading that, Nathan. Good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name's Matt, and I'm one of the ministers here at Helensburg and Stanwell Park Anglican Church. Uh, as we look at Psalm 31 this morning, you may like to ask a question using slido.com with the hashtag HBSP. Uh, after the sermon, um, I'll be looking at those questions and answering a few of them. Well, quite a few years ago, my brother and I went on a holiday to New Zealand. And in New Zealand, when you get to Queenstown, you have the option of doing a bunch of different bungee jumps. And so we decided, let's do a bungee jump. And there was one particular bungee jump that caught our attention, and it was called the Nevis. And this bungee jump was the longest and the uh, biggest drop bungee jump in New Zealand. And so we thought that that's the one for us, the biggest one. And the other thing that was interesting about it is that it was suspended. There was a cable car that suspended in this big gorge. And you jump out of the suspended cable car down towards the Nevis River below. And that's why it's called the Nevis. So we decided that's what we were going to do. So off we went to do this bungee jump. Now, I want to clarify something. I was not fearless doing this. I was freaking out. I was so afraid, afraid. I think I might have been pissing my pants while I was doing it. But anyway, we went out there. And you wonder to yourself when you're doing it, why would anybody strap a rubber band to their legs and jump out of a perfectly good cable car? Why would you do this? But we did it. And we headed out to the cable car. And I put on the harness, and we attached the bungee cord to our feet. And there was a guy there who said, you'll be fine. You'll be great. No worries. And then he starts counting to five, from five down to one. And he, when he gets to one, you're meant to jump. And so he says, are you ready? And I said, no, I'm not ready. And he said, great, five, four, three, two, one. And when you get to one, you commit to jumping out of the cable car. And when you do, you end up putting your hands and putting your life into the hands of someone else. You are trusting in someone and something else. You're trusting the guy next to you has actually attached everything properly. You're trusting that the bungee cord will hold your weight. You're trusting that it's all attached properly, and you believe that you'll be fine. You're trusting in the fact that thousands of people have done it before you, and so far, nobody's died. You're putting your trust in something that has happened in the past, and you're putting your trust in the equipment that you are using as you commit to jumping. And as you leap from the platform, your trust is merited. It is not in vain. And as you leap, it would be appropriate and it would be a, it would be a good response for you as you leaped out to say these words, into your hands I commit my spirit. As you fall for 8.5 seconds before being saved by the bungee cord. Now using a bungee jump experience is a bit of a trivial example of trust. There are many examples that we could use 
of trust. But here in Psalm 31, we see David, in times of trouble, putting his trust in the Lord. And we can use his example found here every day in our lives as we trust in the Lord. His trust is found as he prays these words. He says, my times are in your hands. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. And so before we look at it more closely, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, please take your word that was read to us today and through your spirit impress them on our hearts. Let our hearts take courage as we live each day to glorify your name. Help us to be strong and courageous. And please work in us day by day as we wait and long for the return of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Psalm 31, verse 1. David prays to the Lord and he says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So this psalm begins with David once again finding himself in trouble. He prays in verse 2 that God would rescue him, and he asks for it to be done speedily. Now, this is actually a very common and familiar start to some of these psalms that David writes and prays. David begins by crying out to the Lord. He asks God to help him. And then he explains how God has helped him. And then there is a call at the end of this psalm for us to do the same. That is to put our trust in the Lord. And in this example, he uses the words, he says, incline your ear to me in verse 2. He asks God to listen to his prayer. And then he says, and rescue me. David begins this plea with a plea to be rescued and for the Lord to be his refuge. So in verse 1, David says, O Lord, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. In 2, he says, be a rock of refuge for me. And then in verses 3 and 4, he says, for you are my rock and my fortress. You are my refuge. David, in his prayer, recalls in the past that he has taken refuge in the Lord. And then he asks the Lord to be his refuge. And then, and, and then he basically says, once again, be my refuge because you are my refuge. And this here shows how David puts his trust in the Lord. This prayer shows us the heart of David's, of David's faith. It's a process that David uses, a process that can show us how to trust. So he does not trust in the Lord blindly or because he feels like it 
or because someone else is uh, telling him to. His trust in the Lord is very thoughtful and ordered. He prays, I have taken refuge in you. So be a rock of refuge for me now, for you are my rock, you are my refuge. This process is based on the fact that God has made promises to David. God has proven himself trustworthy in the past. He has promised to be faithful to his holy character, and God has even promised to keep his promises. So David is not taking a leap of faith blindly. He is relying on his past refuge. And he is relying on the very nature of God, who God is. And so then he prays with boldness and he prays with confidence, knowing that he can take refuge in the Lord despite what happens in his life. Now, before we go on, I want to make this point really clear. Faith in our Heavenly Father is not a leap out into the unknown. It is not taking a blind step. It is not trusting in the unknown. Our faith is something that we can be certain about. Our faith is based on certainty, the certainty we have in God's character and in God's promises that are already fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And David's faith is found in the same thing. David trusts in the Lord, and in fact, he goes as far as to say that the Lord is the only certainty in this world. Your confidence in this life can only be found in God. And so that's why he prays what he does in verse 5, where he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And he continues in verses 6 and 7 by saying, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my afflictions. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hands of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. In these verses, David commits himself into the Lord's hand, confidently declaring that he puts his trust in the Lord and not in worthless idols. David rejoices in the Lord's steadfast love, God's steadfast love, which is shown to David in the fact that all his afflictions, all his problems, the distress of his soul is already known by God, and God has not turned him over to his enemies, but has actually picked him up and put him and set his feet in a broad place. God has been a rock and a refuge for him despite his iniquities, despite his sinfulness. So after David has confidently declared that he puts his trust in the Lord, we have in verses 9 to 13 an explanation 
of his troubles, more detail about the troubles that surround him. But what is fascinating about these troubles is that he's also, by explaining these troubles, showing us the things that we would be foolish to put our trust in. And so as we look at these troubles, let's consider what we put our trust in. Starting at verse 9, it says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. The first thing that David is troubled by is his physical body. It seems as though his body is wasting away. His strength is failing him. He is spent with sorrow. It sounds to me like David is exhausted. He's physically not coping with his life. And by describing his exhaustion, how his body is wasting away, he shows us as well that if we think we can put our trust in our bodies in our lives, well, we will be putting our trust in something that is wasting away, something that will eventually end up being dust and something that will fail us. Now, there was a medical doctor who became a missionary with CMS. And in an interview, he was asked, why would he give up being a medical doctor to become a missionary? And his answer was something like this. He said, as a medical doctor, I have a 100% fail rate. But as a missionary, as someone who tells people about Jesus, my work is in pointing people to a life that never ends, free from ailments, free from pain. Meaning, that he is no longer helping people who will only end up dead, but as a missionary, he is helping people understand that they have a future, they have an eternal life waiting for them in heaven. So therefore, trusting in our physical bodies, in this body, is futile. Let's continue reading in verse 11. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Now, to sum up these verses, it seems as though David's trouble is the world in which he lives. First of all, David's neighbors, those closest to him, they despise him. They have deserted him. Not only that, it seems as though his enemies are conspiring against him to take his life. So the troubles that David faced are not just physical. His friends have deserted him, and his enemies want to kill him. Now, we may not have enemies that are plotting against us to take our life. 
but it doesn't take much for us to feel as though our neighbors, our closest friends, those who we love, aren't there for us when we actually need them. Those who we expect to be there for us are not. Why do our friends seem to turn against us when we need them the most? Why is it when they see us, they don't seem to know how to care for us or what to say to us? And they're silent, and they abandon us. Trusting in others for your refuge will only lead to disappointment. Putting your trust in those we love, our friends or our family, our safe people, they will most likely, eventually, they will let us down. Putting our trust in anything in this life, whether it's our homes, our money, our possessions, even the insurances we take out to make sure that we can weather whatever storm comes, putting our trust in these things is, as David says, to pay regard to worthless idols. These things are worthless idols. So who will you trust? Where is your trust when times are difficult? In verse 14, David declares, he says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. And from this point on through to the end of verse 22, David declares over and over how trusting in the Lord pays off. David says in verse 16, Make your face shine on your servant. Save me, O me, in your steadfast love. O Lord, let, not, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. In verse 19, he says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for me, for those who fear you, and work for those who take refuge in you. And in verse 21, he says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. Time and time again, David puts his trust in the Lord rather than trusting in anything found in this world. So, who will you trust? Where is your trust when times are difficult? David's final words in this psalm call us to trust in the Lord, trust in the past promises of the Lord, and trust in his character. And as we do, we can look forward to the future promises with certainty, as David does. David, in verse 23, says, Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your hearts take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Now, oftentimes we have, get this view of David in the Old Testament as a superhero. We've been taught all the stories about David and Goliath, about David when he was a teenager. With his little slingshot, he would go out and he would defeat lions and bears. 
And then he comes along to Goliath, and with one stone, he defeats Goliath. And then David becomes an anointed king, the king of Israel, God's chosen king. And as a result, he becomes a mighty warrior. This is oftentimes the image we have of David. We know David's sins, but we may need reminding that he was also a man who knew suffering. He knew what it was like to feel discouraged, to be hurting, to be exhausted. If I can suggest, I believe one of the most important things that we can learn from David's life is how he prayed. We would do well to pray as he did. David, in troubled times, in his exhaustion, as he feels hopeless, prays this prayer in Psalm 31. And as he prays, he shows us what it means to have faith, what trusting in our Heavenly Father looks like. Jesus shows us the significance of David's trust and his faith when he uses these same words as his final words as he cries out on the cross. And so let's look at those words now. Let's turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, starting at verse 44. Luke 23, 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Leading up to Jesus' death on the cross, it's no coincidence that Jesus faces the same troubles that David faced in Psalm 31. Jesus' closest friends deserted him. His disciples fled from him. Even Peter denied him three times. And not only that, Jesus' enemies schemed together against him. They plotted to take his life. Look with me just a few verses before this in Luke, in Luke 23, verse 20. Luke 23, verse 20 says, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will.
Jesus, who had been found to have no guilt deserving of death, takes the place of a murderer and is subject to death on a cross instead of a murderer. And just before Jesus dies, he calls out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, I give you my life. Jesus entrusts himself to his heavenly Father. Jesus, God's Son, took on human form, was tempted just as we are tempted, yet did not sin. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. He pays the penalty for our sin, and in doing so, takes our place. And God's wrath is completely satisfied by the death of Jesus. And for those of us who put our trust in him, in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we are confident in the fact that he has taken our sins, he has redeemed us, he has saved us. And using the symbolism of the curtain that's ripped from top to bottom into the holies of holies, we can now come into the presence of our heavenly Father, the Almighty God, and we can call him Father, just as Jesus called him Father on the cross. And we too, having access to the Father, can pray these same words that Jesus prayed on the cross. We can pray, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, giving our entire lives to him. Not as those who leap without knowing, but as those who are certain who are confident because we believe and trust in the undeniable promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so by praying the same prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross, we are accepting that there's nothing that we can do to be in a right relationship with God. We are sinful, we are helpless, we are lost. And we know that putting our trust in anything found in this world is futile. So we put our trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And we can continually, every day, pray these words found in Psalm 31. We can pray words like, but I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. Knowing that it is only through the death of God's Son, Jesus Christ, that we can come into the presence of the Almighty God and call him Father. And so because of what Jesus has done on the cross, it is right for us to stop and examine our own lives and to ask ourselves, who do we trust? Where is our trust when times are difficult? Have we fallen into the trap, the net that this world has set for us? Have we allowed over the years, as time has passed, the enticing nature of our possessions, our wealth, our homes, have we allowed them to become the thing that we trust in more than in God? Have we allowed our friends, our families, our support networks to become the thing we trust more than God? 
the more we trust. Even in the most difficult circumstances of life, the more we will motivate others to trust in our Heavenly Father. So as you consider where you place your trust, I would like to challenge you with this definition of what an idol is from Tim Keller. It says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. The question you might like to reflect on in the next few minutes as I close is this. What can you not live without? Because putting your trust in anything other than God is to pay regard to worthless idols. They will not save you in troubled times. And so... Take the next few minutes to consider what you see on the screen. You may also like to ask a question using slido.com. And after this song, I'll be back to answer some questions. We're going to stand and sing now. Uh, Jesus paid it all.